This week on the show, we have Stuart Powell, the president of Cook Shack, the makers of the finest electric smokers on the market, a pellet smoker, a pellet grill, and one of the most unique pellet pizza ovens on the market. Welcome to the Butcher Barbecue Podcast, world headquarters, Wellston, Oklahoma. The Butcher Turned Pitmaster, your host, David Bosca. Welcome, everybody, to this version of the Butcher Barbecue Podcast. We have got a friend of myself, an Oklahoma Barbecue Hall of Famer, a businessman, an engineer, a pitmaster, a husband, a father, a grandfather. Man, the list can go on and on. Everybody, I'd like to introduce you to the CEO and president of Cook Shack, Mr. Stuart Powell. Thank you, David. Enjoyed being with you. Hey, thanks for coming on the, the podcast. We appreciate you taking your time. Um, don't spill any coffee on you. I know it's early in the morning. Um, well, I'm, I'm already on the third cup, so we're okay there. All right. All right. Glad we're not going to waste any. Um, <laughs> tell our listeners a little bit about your barbecue world, what you did a little bit before, and how you got into this. Sure. I, uh, I started my uh, – well, I actually started my first career, I like to say, in the restaurant world, working for – Aramark up in Wichita, Kansas, uh, feeding inmates in the uh, Sedgwick County uh, jail. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of got kind of got a little bit of food, you know, when I was about fourteen years old to about eighteen. So okay, now um, now so got, you you were feeding them. You was in the jail. You said fourteen years old. <laughs> now you weren't in the jail. Well, actually, actually, after I turned seventeen, they let me go up and actually feed. So that, that's how <laughs> um, that's how long ago that's been. <laughs> But, uh, but it, it was an interesting, uh, you know, it was an interesting place for a kid, um, because everything was cooked from scratch. Um, so I, um, you know, learned, learned, learned a bit about the, uh, the culinary world there. Um, and then headed off to, uh, Wichita state and actually central business college first in Wichita state to, um, to get into engineering and actually, uh, went to, um, learn how to be a designer of piping systems and refineries. So, um, if that doesn't get me as far away from barbecue as you can get, uh, went from there and, um, came to Ponca city, Oklahoma. And, uh, and, uh, I'll jump forward a bunch of years and, and, um, met the people that owned cook shack and they were looking for someone to manage that form. The uh, original owners had passed away, um, in 1985. And, um, uh, so in 1991, the, uh, the kids and really from there grew a true passion for barbecue. Um, when I, when I got here, I found that, um, while the original founder Gene Ellis had a great passion for barbecue, I can't say that the, that the, uh, the kids had that great passion. And, um, and so anyway, so that kind of took me down the road of, uh, of learning how to cook, um, on smokers. And, and at first it was simply just in the restaurant world. Um, and spent a lot of time with a lot of chefs, you know, coming up with, uh, recipes and, and originally was really out of just necessarily the barbecue world and more of the smoked foods, um, you know, how to add flavors to food. And, and, um, and then that took me to a point where I started to realize, Hey, we needed to really be in the barbecue world. And, um, and that's when I started, uh, doing some competition cooking out on the barbecue circuit. Uh, first time in 1999 um, at the American Barbecue Association's World Championship. So that was a that was a interesting time and a and a quick uh, introduction to uh, competition barbecue. 
Yeah, that was be, not before, but that was a separate association that's really no longer around that not a lot of people know about. No, exactly. It only lasted about a year. Um, but it was an interesting one simply because they would allow you to cook on anything you wanted to cook on. So at that point in time, we only made electric smokers. And so I took an electric smoker and cooked on it. Um, and, um, and and we had a good time. Can't say that we won a whole lot. I think we did in the top 10 of brisket. And I think that was about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, like I say, it was a, it was a real learning curve. Um, and um, and kind of got me started down the road of hey you know we need to get into this barbecue competition world and and uh, what does that look like so yeah. um, so that that's really where I got a a passion started for competition cooking um, met a um, a guy named Fast Eddie um, and we started doing pellet fired smokers and that really took me out on the barbecue circuit then and um, I can't remember the exact year but. Um, we were cooking the Ponca City cook-off, and I think my daughter, my youngest one, was about 13 or 12, and she goes, Dad, I really, really enjoy doing this. We ought to do more of these, and and um, so me being the smart dad that I was, said, oh, uh, teenager wanting to spend time with their dad, I better do this, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we, that really propelled us out on the cook-off circuit. Um, and at one point in time, we were doing 12 to 15 cooks a year. It was kind of our, was our max, uh, unfortunately lots of other things going on in life. But, um, but when we were cooking that many, we were, you know, semi-successful out there and, and, and loved the, loved the competition world. Yeah. I remember a few of the cook-offs once I got into it, you were already well designated into the, uh, the seams of it. Every every contest I went to, obviously everybody I want to disclosure here. I use your smokers, there's your grills, your smokers. This is what I use. But I remember people would come over to me and say, "Hey, tell me, show me about this." And I would walk over and say, "Here's the president. This is what he's got." And you would leave the cook off without a smoker. You would sell them what you were cooking on. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a pretty common thing back in the you know in the especially the early two thousand coming up on you know 2008 area i mean it was it was unusual almost when we didn't walk away from the cook-off with an empty trailer so um so th those were always the fun days get it all messy greasy and then turn around and sell it and that's that's a nice way yeah. to clean it absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so but the, the, you know it was it was a lot of fun back in those days and, and they're i mean barbecue contests are still a lot of fun don't get me wrong but um they have changed a bit over the years, and, um, you know, it just, um, back then it was such a fast growing sport that, um, you know, it was, it was pretty common that, you know, every contest you went to, there were two or three new cooks there. So, yeah. Um, you know, not quite as much of that today, unfortunately. Yeah. And there's lots of reasons for that. That's, that's for a yep. whole nother podcast. Oh, but... <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Your facilities are in Ponca City. Tell us um, a little bit about that. I know you've moved locations. Um, give us an idea of uh, your employee count, your average uh, employees you got there, as far as how long they've been with you, um, size of your facility. Yeah, so Mark Ellis, our, um, the, the oldest the son of, of the founders, built a building here in Ponca City that was about um, 12,000 square feet back in the – early eighties. And, um, we were housed there, um, from then until, um, three years ago. And, um, 
you know, when I got there in 1991, they were busting at the seams and, um, you know, they had about, Oh, we only had about 12 employees back then. Um, but I added, I did the first add on, I think in 94. Um, and then between 94 and, and, um, 2017 when we moved um added onto that building eight times and, oh, um, my. got it to <laughs> yeah it was a toppled up mess for sure uh but we got up to 24,000 square feet there and and needed more space we were upwards of um right around um, 40 employees and um and you know i always joke that you know, the two things that we got most when we moved to our new building was a break room that everybody could get into because our old break room, you could get about two people in it. And, uh, <laughs> and then, and then we lost the lines to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so I always, I always joke about that, but, um, but those things are really true. But, um, so we were really blessed that the, um, the city of Ponca city has quite an economic development group and quite a vision on how to grow, and help manufacturers in our community. And they had built a spec building um, in 2008. Um, a company had moved into it in 2010, and unfortunately, they didn't make it. They were an oil patch, and you know how that world goes. Um, and so we were able to buy that building um, at, at a pretty inexpensive cost and, and make the move. And um, it's been a great move. We have 35,000 square feet now. Um, we're still right around that 40 employee mark. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, it, it was so nice to walk into a, a manufacturing facility that was just a blank piece of paper, um, with nothing in it that we could just lay our lines out in and, you know, really, really take advantage of, of the floor space, um, really freed up a lot of space for us and shortened our lines considerably. And, just made us a lot more efficient. Oh yeah, I remember touring the plant several times, and the and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the program that y'all stayed with was called a smart program. Does that is that right? No, no, lean actually, lean, lean, that's, lean that's manufacturing, lean yeah. manufacturing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I could We're, see the difference from one to the other, to where this was basically something would start at one end, and when it got to the other end, it was done. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, less touching it, all that. Um, but yeah, I knew you was a big part of the lean manufacturing. And I also remember here in the last year or so you received the company received an award from the state of Oklahoma for accidents. Yeah, we've actually gotten a couple of awards over the years. We, we actually got an award from the Oklahoma manufacturing Alliance back in, um, the early two thousands for our work on lean manufacturing, um, which was, was a nice award to get. And then, um, three years ago, we got our first um, certification, or no, two years ago, we got our first certification from the state that they call SHARP, which uh, means that we, um, they have come in and inspected us, and we meet all OSHA standards, and we have, our accident rate is lower than the average for um, companies in our, our space. Um, and so we got that two years ago, and then this year that was renewed again. Um, so it's two years in a row we've gotten that award and, and um, hope we can just continue down that path. Yeah. And for those that are really thinking, why did I ask that question or bring that up is ultimately folks, it's, it's always about controlling cost. And if 
y'all are your if Cook Shack is looking at controlling the production line, the accidents. Let's be real; that's less they got to charge for stainless on the on the far end of it. So it's to me, it's very important understanding that a company sees the full spectrum of it. Yes, it's bottom line, but it's still controlling expenses. Well, I can tell you one of the things that it just you know impacts kind of the most, um, and, and people don't really think about this, but if your employees are concentrating on being safe, they're also concentrating on building a quality product because a lot of the things that make them safe fit right into that product, you know, deburring material, making sure that, you know, it fits so that when you run into it, it doesn't cut you, those kind of things. I mean, it's, it's amazing what it does for things other than just safety. You know, you think of it as a safety award, but it really um, just impacts everything, including that bottom line radically. Absolutely. That's a great, I wouldn't have looked at it that way, but that is really great. I also remember uh, one of the classes we were doing up there. I heard you say something. I think it was on Fridays. You said you always grabbed a broom and you (laughs) swept the uh, production area. Um, why, why was you just showing your employees or your partners, um, why you do that? Yeah. Unfortunately, my partners, I don't think have ever seen that. So I don't think they, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they know I do that, but, uh, but I think it's important to show people that, you know, I, I can do anything or am willing to do anything that any other employee in the, in the plant is, um, or employing the whole facility, you know, so. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in getting out and doing what needs to get done. And also it just sets the example that we're going to have a clean shop. Um, and you know, that was, that's one of our, um, kind of keystone things that we do is that we, we say that we're always, um, visitor ready. So if, if someone wants to come take a tour, we're ready, whether it's, you know, at five o'clock on Friday or if it's at three o'clock on Monday, you know, that's, so. Yep. I, I agree. Every time I've been up there, someone is willing to walk you through here, put your safety glasses on. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've been in a lot of facilities that, you know, they, um, as, as if you've showed up on a, you know, on kind of a whim and they say, Oh yeah, we'll take you through. And they spend the entire time apologizing for what a mess the place is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I, I don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Well, smokers in the commercial and residential, I guess that's kind of the two categories. There's a residential, there's a commercial smoker, and a lot of folks believe that one can go over to the other, and they can to a point, but there's a certification that needs to happen to show that a smoker is will meet burn-offs, will meet things different than in a residence, because for lack of better words, you have to stupid proof a commercial smoker for you're putting other people in, in arm's way if it goes wrong. Um, so explain a little bit about some of the steps that have to go into an NSF safety certification. Yeah. So there, there's really two interesting sides to that. So there there's the NSF, which is the national sanitation foundation. And their goal is to make sure that um, people are are eating and drinking um, things that are good for them or not necessarily good for them, but aren't going to harm them. Let's put it that way. And so they certify restaurant equipment um, 
to say that it's safe for you to um, to cook in a restaurant in, which really means that you've done the things to make sure that food can't get caught in hinges and, you know, things of that nature, that, that everything in it is made of materials that aren't going to rust and, and you know, pick up food um, substances that could then be transferred back to food. Like um, galvanized. Yeah, like galvanized metal. I mean, you know, um, and even, you know, and and it's kind of funny because if you go out in the barbecue world, there's a lot of a lot of cookers that aren't made out of stainless steel. Um, and, you know, you can't use those in a restaurant because they can rust and, and you know, flakes of rust can come off into the food, things of that nature. So, um, so NSF really looks at that. I can't tell you that the barbecue one's out on the – you know, that you see out there are going to hurt you because typically with barbecue, you have enough grease going on that metal's not going to rust anyway. But, <laughs> yeah. but that's, you know, those are the things that NSF looks at. And, and so we um, certainly comply with that with all of our commercial products. Um, and to be honest with you, all of our residential products would pass that listing. It's just that listing is fairly expensive. And so rather than you know, do something that you don't really need for residential use. We don't, um, we don't go ahead and list those to pass that along, um, that cost along. So it keeps our costs, costs lower. Um, but, um, but we just believe that, you know, it, it's just as simple to, um, to use the same materials, use the same quality. So, you know, our residential products are the same quality, yeah. um, as you're going to get in a, in a commercial kitchen now. You know, there's a lot of them out there that aren't. Um, and, you know, is that bad? Not necessarily, because you're not going to be doing the things in your in your home that you're doing in a commercial kitchen. So Yeah. Well, what's the second one? Is it UL? So the second one is UL, um, and, and that's really a safety listing. So, you know, NSF, well, it is a safety listing. It's, it's a listing on the food side. UL is going to be a listing based upon whether or not, you know, the product could start a fire and things of that nature. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and it's just safe to use. And a, a good example of the differences between those, um, a commercial product has to have heavier gauge wires in it because it's going to be used more often. Um, a residential product has to have a childproof latch because a child could be around that where in a restaurant you're not expecting a child to be, you know, in there. So there's things like that that are, you know, that are the nuances behind that. And, and in reality, you can't, so you can't take a home use smoker that doesn't have an NSF sticker and use it in a restaurant. Okay. If you take a commercial smoker and put it in your home, the chances are your insurance company doesn't want to cover it because it's not been listed for home use. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of interesting how the, you know, those things play together. Um, but we have chosen to use basically the same materials in all of ours. So while our home use smokers, we put a child's, a child safety latch on there that we don't put in our commercial things because there's no real reason to, um, but other than that, all of our, you know, our controllers are listed to the same standards. I mean, we, we, we try to use those things, same things. We use the same gauge of wire in our, uh, residentials. We do our commercial. So, um, I mean, our goal is to have a quality product that's going to last, uh, you know, for years and, and, um, 
you know, it, it, to do that, you have to put the right materials into it. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the understanding of why there's commercial and there's residential. Let's de- go into the commercial side just a little bit, uh, especially for those that are inspiring to want to open up a restaurant or a catering um, kitchen. Uh, so you have two styles. Um, most, um, sorry, most um, companies that make commercial box stainless smokers do an electric and do a gas, uh, be it propane, natural gas. Um, but Cook Shack has taken another route. They do a, an, I'm sorry, they do an electric and a pellet fired smoker. You don't have anything that runs on the gas world. Explain the differences and why you've chosen wood over gas. Yeah, so when I got to Cook Shack in 1991, the only thing they made was electric smokers. And I started realizing pretty early on in my career here that um, electricity it was just hard to produce enough um, heat to do the really big cabinets. So the the cabinets that were, you know, 300 to 700 pounds of meat at a time, um, the amount of electricity you had to use just didn't make any sense to make those size of units. And so, um, and so our largest unit held about 300 pounds of meat and was, was not a rotating rack unit. And so I started messing with, um, with how to get into the, the bigger world and everybody else was doing, um, gas. And I looked at that and I didn't like how gas cooked. Um, and, um, you know, just really sat back and said, what are we after here? And, and really what we were looking for is that the electric smokers aren't going to produce the same texture on the outside of the meat as a gas or wood fired unit. And because of the combustion going on in those. And so I started messing around with actually doing some wood fired stuff, um, that, um, would have been maybe a gas assist, but nothing like is done on the market today. It would have kept the gas completely out of the cooking chamber. So the only thing that you had in the cooking chamber was wood. And I messed with that some, and I didn't like that either, um, just because of the way it cooked. And, and once again, it didn't give me the end product I really liked. And um, and it was about that time that I ran into um, to a guy named Fast Eddie. He was a competition cook out of Kansas City. And he was cooking on uh, wood on uh, wood pellets, and my first thought of those, I didn't have really great thoughts about. It. I thought, well, that didn't make any sense. Um, but then I started looking at them a little closer, and then I started cooking on them, and I started realizing that um, cooking on wood pellets solved a whole lot of the problems that were out there with just wood fired equipment and even the gas fired stuff. And so as I started to look at it, I started to realize that we could solve problems for our customers out there. And, and it got me away from that gas. It got away from the issues behind gas. Um, you know, gas really eats the moisture out of the air whenever it uh, burns. And so it tends to dry the the end product out and so to get better yields um you know all the all the guys cooking on straight wood were getting better yields than the guys cooking on gas and so i'm like well if i could get those same kind of yields 
then I'm I'm helping my customer make more money. And so we made the decision um, to uh, to go with, down the pellet fired path, and have been thrilled ever since. Oh, that's that's a very easy, but reasons why that's that's what I was wanting everyone to realize and to see that there's ups and downs for both and there's not one fix for any one person but if you're out there just trying to decide which way to go definitely take a look at the wood-fired world uh, the pellet world and then that opened up another avenue for you um, because there's not wood you can't transfer transport wood into everywhere in the United States so you had to then Go find wood for your pellets. Absolutely, and it, I, I find that still kind of interesting. But you know, one of the one of our biggest customers that we have, and and um, the reason we have them as a customer is because they um, they couldn't get wood shipped to a location because of the the rules around shipping wood across. And a lot of times, it's even county lines within states, but certainly across state lines. And they built a new store in, in California. That store sent empty for nine months while they tried to figure out how to get wood in there because, you know, the the state of California was saying it has to be um, sprayed with pesticides or they didn't want to put that back into a smoker or it had to be kiln dried and that takes a bunch of the flavor out of it. And so they were they were constantly, that you know, they spent about nine months trying to find a wood source, finally gave up and put one of our pellet fire units in. Because pellets are of, you know, you can't have pests and and um, in a um, in a pellet because of just the the process it goes through to create the pellet would kill anything that might be in there. So, um, so anyway, so that you know that whole wood thing um, has become a real problem in a lot of places. Um, and of course, then once we started saying, well, we need a mill to make pellets, um, it was important to put a mill wherever the wood was so you're not transporting wood all over all over the country and it, and it keeps our pellets at a good price um that we don't have to go get wood from missouri and ship it to oklahoma you know for to put it in a mill ortega so. tortillas i know you're sitting there going what does that have to do with with <laughs> this but ortega tortillas everybody knows they make all these different tortillas in the grocery stores everybody thinks they're a mm -hmm. good texas company that's where they were they were down in el paso it's where they all started then for the very same thing they realized hey all the corn for our tortillas are in nebraska so they actually moved the plant up there um that's where they make tortillas at now yep yeah yeah it just makes total sense you know i um i have a i um a group that just put a, a mill in and, and they talked to me about doing this. And, and I said to them, I said, you know, you need to get your mill where the product is. Well, they put this mill in, in, on the South side of Dallas. And I, I talked to them, they, they, they just made their first batch of pellets and, and I was talking to them and they were going, well, you know, we're not sure now because it cost us a lot more to get that raw materials in here than we <laughs> thought it would. I was like, okay, that's kind of what I said to you. Yep. <laughs> uh, so it, it is important to be where there's where there's raw materials. That's right. And with with the smokers in mind, it's we're talking about the wood versus the electric. Um, the smokers don't make a lot of the choices for you. They just burn correctly and there has to be something. So wood is wood. It's going to burn. If it's in a pellet, if it's in a log, if it's in a stick, if it's sawdust, it's, it's going to burn. If it's, if it's a lump charcoal, 
but you guys have taken the controllers to a new level um, with your electronics, your your testing, um, USB. Uh, you have helped out the restauranteurs by doing this. Explain just a little bit about what your controllers will help them do other than get sleep. Yeah. So sleep is always one of the important things. Um, and that's really where the USB uh, data port came from. Uh, you know, my, I've always been one that when I develop something, I go out and try to talk to customers and say, what is it that you need? And, um, we, one of the things that we ran into was that there are some states that have passed uh, health codes that if you cook overnight, you have to have someone there to monitor the piece of equipment or you have to record the temperature of it to make sure that it stayed on all night. And, um, and so we were like, well, that's not difficult to add into a controller. And so we put a USB uh, port on our, on our board and we record the temperature that you cook at and record a temperature of a meat probe if you want to do that also um, so that you can pull that and show your health inspector. Um, If you get into the bigger world where um, they have HACCP plans, um, most HACCP plans require that you record those temperatures. Make sure that you hit, you know, 140 degrees within four hours that you reached your final temperature, whatever that is, you know, 180 or 190 degrees. Um, and so we've allowed them to be able to get all that without having to go out and buy expensive recording uh, devices um, to be able to do that with. And having it on the smoker is always a better thing than having a secondary one anyway, um, because I don't know how many of those um, temperature recorders I've seen laying on the floor in USDA plants um, that somebody's knocked off the piece of equipment and broken. So, uh, so just having it in there is great. Um, the other thing then that we really did with our controllers to go out and say to customers, you know, how exactly are you cooking? And what we found was that in the smoking process, it's nice to be able to do what we like to call three stage cooking, where you have, you can start out at a lower temp and raise up to a, a cooking temperature and then drop back down into a holding temperature. And so we set all of our controllers up now that they, so that they do that. That's three-stage cooking. Um, and that, you know, is helpful from, you know, getting more smoke into a beef brisket or a pork shoulder to drying the casings on sausage if you're doing sausage. So, um, so it really allows them to automate those processes so they don't have to be there to, um, to do that. Um, and then the other thing that we really look at with our controllers is how do you maintain good temperature? Um, and it, and this is kind of an interesting one because if you really look at the science behind it, you really need some temperature fluctuation. Um, I've actually gotten them so that they, the temperature was so tight that they wouldn't produce smoke. Um, uh, because you were using such a little amount of fuel either on the pellet fire or the electric, um, smokers. And so you need a little bit of temperature variance. And so, you know, we were able to build that right into the controller so that um, it sits there and manages that for the customer so the customer doesn't have to worry about it. Um, you know, in the, and especially in the restaurant world, you know, to be able to put a piece of meat in a, in a smoker and walk away and go do something else is incredibly important. Um, you know, the cost of labor is just so high that to have somebody have to sit there and monitor it and, you know, make sure that things are 
where they're supposed to be is just too too costly to do today. And so to automate those things is, you know, really important. So to digress just a little bit about what you just said, I picked up something there that a lot of people will say about pellet smokers. They say, well, I don't get enough smoke out of it. Sometimes it's not that you're getting enough smoke out of it. Your cooker is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, and that's burn efficient, use that complete pellet, and let it go. And you had stated in there that you've got, that y'all have realized that one thing the customers are saying is exactly what I said. So you now have a program on the front side of your commercial products that will help the smoker burn inefficient. Right. So we call that the smoke mode. Um, sometimes I wish I hadn't called it that, but because <laughs> you're still cooking. Uh, some people think, oh, all it's doing is smoking, but it, it's it's cooking at whatever temperature you set it at. But we control the amount of, of fuel that we're putting into the fire and the amount of air that we're pushing into it. And in that smoke mode, we um, we make it so it burns less efficiently and so it creates more smoke. Um, it's much like if you... You know, remember going out and setting a pile of leaves on fire. If you um, if you just go to throw a match on them and they and they start to burn, they produce a ton of smoke. But if you start blowing on them and actually get them going on fire really well, then they don't produce any, much smoke. And so, really, the you know cooking with pellets or logs of any kind, that same principle works. So we just slow down that amount of air, slow it down, you know, starve it for a little bit of fuel, and we really produce a lot more smoke. Well, that's that's exactly what I wanted also to come across with this is is to educate the folks and them understand that pellets put out the same amount of smoke. It's how you utilize it and when you impart it also. Yeah, absolutely, because that you, know, you can get into a whole conversation about how long you absorb smoke. But um, you know, if you, I can guarantee you at the beginning of a cook cycle, it's going to absorb most more smoke than it does later in that cook cycle. So if you can really put more smoke on it early, you know, the more flavor you're going to get through that piece of meat. Yeah. Well, okay. We've talked about commercial. We've talked about residential smokers. Let's get into something that is taking the market by storm and that's grills. You guys have two really high end, nice stainless, um, residential grills and, well, actually, let me let me digress a little bit. You started with the commercial um, uh, char broiler, correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So yep. you took the the char broiler and and explain to people what a char broiler is. That if they're not sure what that is. Sure. Yeah. So a char broiler is just simply direct cooking. So no no kind of a lid or you know anything to to um, stop the smoke and the and the heat. Everything basically you know you're at the bottom cooking up that makes sense and you find those in commercial kitchens where there's steakhouses yeah. uh things of like that where i'm going to charbroil your steak on it that that's where that is coming from folks right so you took the knowledge you'd learned by producing those and those come in if i remember right 12 24 36 increments of 12 is how far that, that's correct yes yes that can fit into your kitchens and those are pellet fired also and then you went into pellet grills for the household. And these, I love the concept of your multiple zone cooking in these. Um, I've, there's not another one out there like this. Um, but 
explain just a little bit about your commercial, I'm sorry, your residential grills. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's kind of an interesting world because, you know, when we got into making pellet fire cooking equipment in 2002, there were, there were two companies making pellet grills. Um, today there's about 25 and a couple of big, big players getting ready to enter into that marketplace now. Um, but what we saw was that all of them cooked the exact same way. And really, if you go out there and look at what's been done, they still almost always cook the same way. And we just thought that there was a better way to do it. And cooking directly over the fire was one of the things that to me was really important. If you're going to grill, you've got to have enough heat to, to grill. Um, and I'd always grilled at, you know, 600 to 700 degrees. Um, and you couldn't do that on any of the pellet um, grills that were in the marketplace. So we put a section of our grill in that you're cooking right over that fire. Um, and it'll go, the, the controller goes to 600 degrees, but when you're at 600 degrees and you're right over that fire, you're really cooking upwards of about 700 degrees. Um, so if you want nice grill marks on your steak, you want to cook those, you know, I like to say the four minute steak, um, it does that perfectly. Um, and then obviously all, everybody that buys a, a pellet grill wants to be able to smoke in it. And so we have an offset side, which is what we like to call zone two, which takes all that heat that's coming up out of that, um, out of that area, that direct cooking area and pushes it down through the, um, through the indirect side. The interesting part of the indirect side is, is that it's cooking from the top down. So our flues underneath that. And so, um, and so we're cooking from the top down and it's kind of interesting because you can open up the, the doors or roll the lid back on the 1000 and see exactly, um, where you're at cooking wise. You don't have to flip it over to see where you're at. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, feature. And then our zone three is a top shelf of a grill and it cooks like every other top shelf of every, every grill that's in the marketplace. And then the last area that we were able to produce was what we like to call the warming drawer. And it's going to be about half the temperature of whatever you're cooking at. And so it'll actually, you know, I'll take, and if you're cooking a bunch of hamburgers, you can toss them down in that drawer when you get done and keep them warm until you get all of them cooked. Um, but also it will allow you to cold smoke. And so if you want to um, just impart smoke into something like cheese, you can throw cheese down in that drawer and turn the the uh, grill down to 170 degrees, and you'll never exceed whatever your ambient temperature is then. And um, and so you can smoke cheese or lock style salmon things of that nature. I love to just throw steaks and down in there and get a lot of smoke flavor on them, and then toss them up on the direct side and grill them really quick. Yeah, um, and I think a very not knowledgeable part of this is not all wood burns at the same, uh, uh, sea level. Uh, it's like baking how, how mm -hmm. it rises. You guys have thought that out and you have put in a part into the controllers that allows someone that lives in the highest altitudes of the Rocky mountains to control how fast the auger turns and how many seconds it's on, um, to where they can pinpoint exactly how they want to cook versus someone sitting on the coast in Florida. 
Right. Yeah. And I, and I think it's really important because, you know, if you go out there and just um, look at how most reels work, they don't give you any, any, you know, variables in that. And so we built that into ours. It's fairly simple. Um, a two button push, you're into a setup cycle and you can change it. And we have, you know, in our manuals, how to do that and what kind of settings you might want to look at. Um, but it sure makes it so that no matter where you're at, you can get set to a place where you can get the desired food that you want out of the, out of the piece of equipment. Yeah. The, and the two kinds of grills you have, one is an insulated unit, one is a non-insulated. So you've got the, the difference there for, yeah, there's a mm-hmm. price difference, but it's, it's, I would say it's more for what you're wanting to do. And they actually cook different. Even though everything is the same, the insulated one to me holds the smoke because you're not cycling as much. Um, I personally use the non-insulated one, and that's just because I'm 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 fat and old and dragging it in and out of my competition trailer. It's a little lighter, but that's for another world. But that's for the fitness world. But um, there is y'all y'all have the two kinds: the one thousand, the PG one thousand, and the PG five hundred. Yeah, that, that's correct, and they and they are exactly the same as far as size goes. Um, so the cooking the cooking capacity is identical in them. Um, you know, the PG five hundred we've kind of used as our entry level um, to try to get to a price point that um, you know we'll, we'll never be the the big box store um, smoker. But if you go buy a pellet grill at the big box store and and it rusts out in a couple of years. Um, you know, our PG 500 makes a great step up from that. Um, and so, and then obviously the PG 1000 is just the sleek, um, looks like, you know, a high dollar grill on a look and, and, um, and is double walled. So it really holds that, that temperature in and has a rollback top. Um, some of those kind of features, but as far as, you know, the cooking space, they're identical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cook shack smokers, cook shack grills. We, we've talked about the different smokers, commercial, residential, electric pellet, the, the char broilers, the pellet grills, and then cook shack goes into an area that, okay, not the average person would be thinking, um, dishwasher. No, um, uh, washer and dryer. No, but cook shack still stays in the food world, but then they come out with a pizza oven pizza that's not barbecue what explain the concept and and tell us about this wood-fired pizza oven yeah it really came from uh, we were sitting in a strategic planning meeting one day trying to come up with you know some research and development ideas and and um you know we were saying okay we we've got a a pellet-fired smoker and we've got a pellet-fired grill what other things could we make that are pellet fired that make sense? And wood fired pizza ovens came right out, you know? Okay. So, um, and so we started to look at it and said, could we improve on the wood fired pizza industry? Because I am a, I'm a person. I don't like to just make something that somebody else does, you know, compete off of. Really? I'd have never realized that. (laughs) (laughs) If I can't make something different, I don't want to get in that world. So, um, and so we looked at that wood-fired pizza world pretty hard, and 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 came up with some solutions that we think make a lot of sense. Um, 
And so the first of those just being the whole thing of, of wood versus pellets. So anytime you're cooking on a whole log, you've got all those issues of, you know, where do you get the logs? Are they pest and rodent controlled? How are you going to dispose of the ash? And so pellets really resolve all of that. So we were able to say, okay, well, right off the bat, we can take care of those issues for them. But what are the other things that, you know, are going on in the wood-fired pizza industry? And one of the big things that I found is, is that every time that they cook a pizza, they have to have somebody sitting there turning that pizza. And so most of them tell you that you need to turn the pizza every 20 seconds. And so you have to have an operator that's building pizzas and one that's cooking pizzas. And so I thought, well, could we do away with that? And so we went out and, and, you know, really worked on the design and our wood fired pizza oven, you put a pizza in there and you don't turn it, you don't touch it for the two and a half, three minutes that it's going to cook. Um, and so we thought that was, you know, a really big, big point. Um, also most of the wood fired pizza ovens out there in the marketplace, you can never turn them off. Okay. Um, because it takes so long for them to get hot. So you have to just keep them running constantly. Ours is, we can actually get to 900 degrees in ours and it will get to 900 degrees in 20 minutes. Um, and it takes about another 20 to 25 minutes to sink the stone to that temperature. So in less than an hour, you're cooking pizzas where, um, a lot of the, a lot of them out there, it's, it's four or five hours, eight hours. You know, like I say, most of them never turn them off once they get them, get them going. So, so they have to leave um, them running overnight. Yeah. So they leave them running overnight. Um, so, you know, so we're, we're solving, you know, things for those people where they, you know, they, they walk out at night. They're not having to worry about okay, do I have the right amount of wood in there to keep my that stone hot all night so that when I come in the next day, um, I don't have to worry about it. Wow. Um, the other thing then that I found was is having a pellet burner right underneath a stone, that that stone doesn't lose temperatures as much. And this is one of the reasons they have to turn them and those turn the pizzas in those other ovens is that when you put a piece of cold dough on there, you're knocking temperature, you're sucking temperature out of that stone. Well, we can put enough BTUs into the bottom of that stone that we don't do that. And so that really keeps us cooking at the same temperature all the time. Um, and so those were kind of the things that really mattered to me. It also means that our crust, if, if you're a wood-fired pizza guy, you have to know that there's, that leoparding that goes on on the bottom of the crust that really makes it look good and, and really makes it that crunchy um, taste that you want out of a wood-fired pizza, um, we get that better than anything I've, any other pizza oven that I've cooked on. And, um, and everybody that has one of them just, you know, says they can't believe how every pizza is the same every time. And so... That, that was kind of my, you know, that, that was kind of our design criteria. And it was like, wow, we hit it. So, so do you have one model of those right now? Yes. Right now we have one model. Um, we have just kind of, um, we're getting ready. And as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll let you introduce it for me. <laughs> okay. um, we're, we're doing, we're doing our first, um, model that we are putting a brick facade around the front of it. So it looks more like a pizza oven. That was, 
you know, the one comment I got from everybody about them is it doesn't really look like a pizza oven. <laughs> oh, wow. So we're, uh, so we're putting a brick facade on it and, um, and we're putting two of them into that, um, had to change the, the configuration around a little bit. Um, but they really, um, they look like a wood fire pizza oven now. Very um, nice. And so it, uh, so those will cook two pizzas at a time. But they also allow you to cook at two different temperatures if you want to, because that's one of the one of the other things that we hear um, in the wood fired pizza industry a lot is is that all you can really cook in them is um, pizza because you have one operating temperature. So this way you could have two of them sitting side by side, one of them run at 700 degrees, the other one run at 400 if you wanted to do some calzones and you know things of that nature. Hmm. That's a whole nother world to get into outside of smokers um, versus just putting wood in, putting meat in and walking away. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's been really interesting um, because I had no idea when we started talking about that, just the differences in pizza dough and the differences in flour. And it's, you know, it's much like the, the barbecue world, you know, do you put a little nutmeg in your, in your seasoning <laughs> flowers yeah. in the same way, you know? Which, which flower do you use? So on a business aspect, have you guys explored the opportunities available to distribute that, the, the product, to make the proper dough for your pizzas? So we are working on that right now. Um, a couple of different different methods of doing that. One would be a dry that, you, you know, a a, a, a dough that's ready all you have to do is add water we're looking at that and then we're also looking at frozen doughs uh, like dough balls uh-huh yeah so you could get a case of dough balls or you know however many you needed so looking at both of those things uh, as we speak so hmm. well that that does cover that i guess you have looked at yeah that. Um, yeah and, and i think that it's a uh, you know um what i see out there is that um you know, if you come up with a with the right one, that, that it's much easier to go out and get it commercially than it is to make it in your restaurant every day. So, there goes back to the consistency of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Cook Shack started with. Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Well, is there anything in the Cook Shack cooking world that we haven't discussed that that you want to want to bring out? I think we've covered it, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, one thing that I might just um, I might throw out there while we're talking, and, and um, you know, you and I have, have been good 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 friends for a long time, and I certainly appreciate what you do with our with our cooking classes. We're currently just doing one a year right now, but um, that's an area that um, we get a lot of questions about, and so we do a um, a cooking class on how to bring competition level barbecue into your restaurant. And, um, and obviously you've been a big part of that. Um, but that class, you know, we get a lot of interest in it. And, um, and so if people are looking at how to do that, we certainly have the resources to, um, to help them with that. Yes. And he's got a full office set up. He's got 
salespeople that do residentials, salespeople that do commercial. So they're specialized in what they do. If you've got any questions about this podcast, Cookshack products, definitely reach out to uh, the office up there. They'll direct you to the right people that have the knowledge and can step you through, especially if you've got like, let's say an outlet um, your smokestack and there's a regulation that you need to know. Do I need to have this hood vent? Um, they've already been down this road. So definitely reach out to them and, and talk with them about some of the specifics that you might need to meet code. Um, yeah, appreciate that. David. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's step out of uh barbecue just a little bit. Let's, let's forget cook shack. Um, what does Stuart Powell have far as a hobby a passion what do you do outside of that to keep your sanity well there's probably two things that i spend most of my time doing and um the, the first one is is kind of my um you know it's my hobby passion for now um because i've kind of backed away from the the barbecue competition world a little bit um mostly because my daughter you know has has two kids now and can't can't get out on the circuit with me as much as she used to. So, um, so I've gotten back to playing golf. So I um, I play a lot of golf, um, probably more than I should if you ask my wife. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but really enjoy that. I've enjoyed golf for a long time, but it's probably my um, my my biggest thing that I do just to go out and get my mind off of everything else. So um, so it's it's a fun time. And then the other thing that probably I do a ton of that probably drives a lot of people crazy is that I, I'm just an avid learner. So I want to learn everything I can learn. So I, I'm constantly reading books about something yeah, or, or listening to podcasts or, you know, listen to Ted talks and all those things. So um, that's probably my other real, uh, real passion um, in life is just to learn. So you, you're basically, you're saying you sponge up information to maybe use it, or you just want to know about it? Uh, yes and no, okay. <laughs> or yes and yes, maybe, maybe yes and yes. I mean, I, I definitely like to just learn period. Um, and sometimes it's about things that I can go out and use and sometimes it's not. So, um, but I certainly enjoy learning about things that I can go out and use probably more than more than the other so you know um so i'm always reading you know business type books learning leadership type things um i'm always trying to figure out you know what's what 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 are what are the what's the science behind cooking uh, a piece of meat you know or what's the latest trend you know out in the restaurant world those are the things that i like to eat up and read about and you know constantly do um you know for for a long time i had a um i, I always called it a hobby and i've kind of gotten out of this now but i used to um used to have a little church that i preached at and um and so i i still you know do my share of uh of reading about theological kind of things so um but um you know but really stay in that business business world and and cooking probably the majority of it maybe that's why we've stayed close as far as friends is I, I love the channel 13s, the learning channel, the history channel. I, I love studying that kind of stuff myself. And my kids will always tell me, cause they'll say something. I'll pop pop off a, a stat or, or did you know? <laughs> and um, they'll go, you know, you are a wealth of useless knowledge. 
<laughs> yeah, I've been told that. I've been told that. But I, I mean, I I will tell you that the probably one of the very first times I met you, one of the things that was most fascinating to me was what you knew about meat, and oh. um, and I and I still tell people all the time that you know that David's forgotten more about meat than I'll ever know. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thanks, <laughs> but. But it, but you know it's interesting to be around people that you know have have that knowledge about other things and you know you can glean things from and and really uh, and really learn. That's right. I, I'm always about what one thing did I get out of it? What what I read a saying the other day and I absolutely loved it. Someone, oh, I think there again. I think it was Facebook. I believe it was uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy sitting there, and Charlie Brown said. Um, uh, well, you only live once or you don't, let's see. No, you only die once. And Snoopy said, no, you die once, but you live every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, here's a little segment of our show that we do with everyone that comes on the podcast. Um, I've got all these injection needles sitting here in the warehouse, so I'm going to use one <laughs> of them. I'm going to uh, inject you with a podcast truth serum. I'm going to ask you a question. Give me your answer. All right. Um, are you a hot dog person, a bratwurst person? Which one? Uh, bratwurst. Bratwurst. You prefer ketchup, mustard, something else. What do you like on your bratwurst? <laughs> so I mix ketchup and mustard together. Do you like kraut? Yes, there you go. See, that was the other that no one else has brought up. And I just thought I'd ask. Okay. You still got some of this going through your system. Okay. In the adult world, um, do you like beer, a whiskey, or are you a tea drinker? Uh, so I, I'm a, I'm a vodka drinker. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am not proficient enough to ask what particular type of vodka, if it mixes, if it goes over ice. I don't know much about vodka other than it's clear. So you're, you're off the hook for the rest of the questions. Yeah. Well, and that's why I started drinking it was because it was clear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, but I, uh, I've gotten into these, they're starting to be much like bourbons and whiskeys. There's gotten to be these little, um, uh, boutique distillers of vodka now. And so I've, I've started chasing those around and, and, um, tasting, tasting different vodkas. Cause I, when I, um, you know, I, I never knew until I started doing that that vodkas had different flavors to them. So, this last summer, I was down in Dallas and I did a cook with the Boy Scouts of America when they mm -hmm. had their national convention and their spouses for their leaders. We cooked for them and talked about barbecue, and it was held at a vodka distillery down there at Dallas. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly what you're yep. talking about. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, all right. I think that pretty well covers everything I was wanting to cover on this podcast with Stuart. Um, Stuart, once again, thanks so much for coming on board and discussing and talking with us. Um, tell everybody where they can locate you or Cook Shack on the internet. Yep, for sure. And, and David, thanks for everything you do for us. Also, we, we I've certainly enjoyed our relationship over the years. Um, but yeah, you can find us at, at real simple, www.cookshack.com. Or call us at 1-800-423-0698. And we're headquartered right in Ponca City, Oklahoma.
Well, I appreciate that. That's great information. And everybody pick up the phone, um, go to the Facebook page. They have a lot of posts. They do some YouTube videos. Um, you can see the star of the YouTube bill. Um, you'll get to know and love him. He's a great guy. He's probably been with cook shack. I don't think the longest, but you'd think he was, no. was there forever. Um, but he's a fun guy to, to bounce questions off of. Um, that should bring us to an end. Everybody, uh, Wherever you listen to the podcast at, if it's uh, if you're on an iPhone and Android, Google Play, wherever, uh, subscribe to these to where you don't miss anything, and go to our website www.butcherbbq butcher barbecue and pick up what you need from us. Uh, Stuart, thanks a lot for uh, joining in. Thank you, David. Smash that subscribe button and be ready for Butcher's next podcast.